Welcome to Middle School Walk and Talk, a podcast series offering heart, hope, and health to members of our middle school communities. Take a walk with co-hosts Phyllis Fagel and Joe Mazza as they discuss self-care, student well-being, school culture, and more. Middle School Walk and Talk is a production of the Association for Middle Level Education and is designed to support the concepts outlined in our foundational text, The Successful Middle School, This We Believe. Learn more at amle.org. Today's episode, It's Chemistry, Not Character, with special guest Ned Johnson. Hey, Phyllis, how's it going? It's going well. It's hard to believe it's only Monday. It's amazing how much can happen, you know, in the first two hours of the school day on a Monday. Recording this on the 18th of October, so that leaves us a little about 12 days until Halloween. Which is on a Sunday. (laughs) Yes, and I think a lot of schools are using the excuse that it's on Sunday to maybe dial down the Halloween festivities during the school day, which are complicated during COVID. So we did it last year and this was one of those, you know, moments of like, do we do this? We've been saying no for a year and a half. Can we just, so we said yes. And we rolled with it last year and we did everything we did the year before, but obviously social distance and whatnot. Um, so we, I just pushed those uh, updated 2021 guidelines out on Friday to get us ready for the 29th. We're going to celebrate on the 29th here across the school. Oh, Friday. That was smart. Yeah. What do you do on Halloween? Everybody dresses up, you know, uh, students dress up, staff dress up. You know, it's um, it's a fun day. It's always at this building. There's a history of like a, a game day schedule where, you know, two times during the year, the Halloween and typically right around Valentine's Day, the eighth graders play the staff and something. So um, we're meeting about that tomorrow. Probably going to do something outside this year. Yeah, sounds fun. So I'm very excited because we have a guest today who is not only an acclaimed author, but also a good friend of mine and someone that I ask for advice whenever possible, because everything he shares with me is just well-considered and wise. And he's a father, he's an educator himself. He founded Prep Matters, which is a tutoring and educational advising company. Some of you might be familiar with his books. He wrote The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And he wrote the recent release, which is wonderful as well, called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. And I think we can all agree that the timing for a book like that is perfect. He co-wrote both of those with Dr. William Stixrud, who's a psychologist here in DC. And so today we are going to try to cover, you know, everything related to intrinsic motivation, communicating with middle schoolers, advising teachers when things start to go downhill and how we can help kids after so many months of disruption uh, when everyone is a bit out of sorts. So welcome, Ned. Phyllis, I'm delighted to be with you and Joe. So maybe we can start by talking about the fact that I know, and Joe and I have talked about this before, for kids who have had so much disruption, we're seeing a lot of differences in behaviors and how kids are interacting with one another, their sensitivity about their interactions with teachers. Some, some of them are discouraged or their motivation is down. And I think we all would like to know how we can best motivate kids or encourage them to be intrinsically motivated to have goals that they are interested in working towards. 
what does the science tell us? What does your experience tell us that would help middle-level educators do this? Well, there are a couple of things. One, the, the model for self-determination, for the model for intrinsic motivation, the best model is what's called self-determination theory. And it holds that to be intrinsically motivated, to, not just to work hard, but to want to work hard rather than doing it you know, in response to carrots and sticks, we need to have met three psychological needs. One for a sense of competency. So if you feel like you're the worst math kids, you don't wanna work hard to get a math, you don't wanna do it at all, right? You need a sense of relatedness. And this is why great educators are worth their weight in gold because they don't get kids to work hard, they get kids to want to work hard. And then the third piece is a sense of autonomy that I need to have some sense that this is my life, that I have some say in this thing and I'm not just along for the ride. And the challenge is those th three things kind of need to be in, in, in equal proportions. It's a bit like a three-legged stool. And I suspect it's a little bit in the community here as it is in the community in, in, in DC where parents too often, you know, focus, focus, focus on the competency, the competency, the competency, and, 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 and trying to push all the skills, but they undermine their, their connection or their relatedness with a kid and they, and they weaken their autonomy. And then the surprise where kids don't want to work hard. Um, and oftentimes kids have to make a choice between, you know, do I do what my parents want me to do or my teacher wants me to do to maintain that relationship? Or do I get to keep my own autonomy, you know, and, and, they, and they have to make a trade-off. And we, we want to do our best to not make them have to have a trade-off if we want them to, to want to work hard. So what are teachers getting right and what are teachers getting wrong in your experience? What are students telling you that you work with? If you could walk into a school and speak the honest truth to the teachers in the building, what would you advise them to do? Oh, well, gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sympathetic to teachers because um, you know, anything that leads to more stress causes problems, right? And golly, do we have enough source of stress in the world right now? And it's important to remind ourselves that there's a wonderful researcher named Sonia Lupian who has this acronym of what makes people nuts, okay? So N is novelty. So it's not just the coronavirus. Woohoo! It's the novel coronavirus, right? U is unpredictability. If we knew when this thing was going to end, that would help us. T is perceived threat. And pre-COVID that for most of the time for kids, that was, was do I look like I'm a dummy, right? Is it a threat to ego? Am I cool? As opposed to a, the guy gonna cough at me, I'm gonna die. And then this is a low sense of control. And the research suggests that of these things, novelty, unpredictability, threat, and a low sense of control is that last one that's the worst. That we can tolerate new situations and, and maybe feeling a little unsettled so long as we feel like there's something that we can do. If you put those two things together, here's the challenge. If a low sense of control is stressful, we try to lower our stress by increasing the sense of control. So if you're a parent who's stressed out or a teacher who's frustrated, we try to exert more control over our kids, but the problem is then they have less control. And then it's because it's a bit of a zero sum game. In our, in our book, we look at the research of uh, Jesse Borelli, who's a guru on parental over control, and basically finds that when parents jump in to help, I won't go through the whole story, but when parents jump in to start telling the kids what to do, they feel less stressed, but their kids feel more stressed. So anything that lowers the stress, I would also say, particularly for parents and kids and, and educators from middle school, taking the long view helps a lot. And I know the teachers are like, give me a, give me a break. It's those crazy parents, which is probably mostly true, right? The, the parents who are catastrophizing, you know, if their kids, he's got a B minus in math in seventh grade, he's never going to Princeton. Oh, stop, stop, stop. And, you know, because if we can, if we can, if we can know that these struggles now are just part of their path, 
you wouldn't worry about it so much. And, and for me, it's a lot easier to walk this walk because really quickly, I had a family who had way too much going on. My dad was an alcoholic. My mother's in and out of hospitals for her mental health. And I spent a good three months of seventh grade in a pediatric psychiatric hospital. And so I didn't get any grades and I good, bad, or good, there's nothing, right? But I came back and, you know, got back on my stride because all appearance to the contrary, even if you've got kids who are just, you know, I believe the kids want their lives to work out. They may not do it now, they may not do it how the adults in their world want them to, but if we can, as educators, and help kids believe that there's a path for you going forward, it makes it brings everyone's temperature down. And it's okay that life is really sucky and your performance right for now is really sucky. Because from a performance perspective, if a kid feels overwhelmed, trying to tell him of the supreme importance of doing the very thing that overwhelms him, doesn't make him do it, it makes him run away because you know better than I, Phyllis, that the dominant manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. So when we freak kids out, they run away even harder from the things that they really should and could be doing. Ned, you said so many things that I want to respond to there, but I'll, I'll kind of be direct. Right now, we are focusing on, in our advisory on executive functions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there, there's a list of five or seven or 11 or 13, just depends on kind of which book that um, you're reading. I, mm -hmm. I think we're going from the um, smart and scattered teams. Mm -hmm. Um, by Guare and Dawson. Mm -hmm. uh, so this one's got 11. I guess my question is, you know, taking the lens of executive functions and, you know, what you're talking about here in this whole self-determination. Yeah. Uh, um, you, you know, they, they, the, the hill is steep, you know, for adolescents because they're dealing with this as well. Um, a lot of schools still have a very formal model of we're going to tell you what to do, where to go all day long. There's not a whole lot of voice and choice and agency. It's something that Phyllis and I have talked about on this podcast. What can we do to continue to create that? But, you know, in addition to, you know, the supporting the teacher here, you know, they've got to have their eye on that ball in terms of helping the yeah. kid be a, a human and be a yeah. good citizen and identify how to support themselves in, in life. So how, how, does the, how does the executive functions play into this? Well, the, I mean, the two things that are helpful to know, one of course is that executive functions reside within the prefrontal cortex, which is the slowest part of the brain to develop. You know, cognitively fully mature at age 25, plus or minus three, probably plus three for guys, minus three for, for girls, because they, women brains develop more quickly. I'm sure we're surprised by that. Um, and so a lot of times when kids are having a hard time, we, we worry that, they're, that they're, their entire life is gonna be a mess because they're just messy right now. And it's easier for people who have, you know, watch kids be a disaster at age 12 or 14 or even 18 and see them years later come, come together. And so we, we want to be careful that we don't use language by which we give up on kids or encourage them to kind of give up on themselves. I would also say there's a, there's a wonderful researcher, uh, kind of a guru on executive functions named Adele Diamond. And she makes this, she has this wonderful line from a TED, TEDx talk where she says this, if you are sad or lonely or tired or stressed or in poor physical health, your executive functions will be impacted first and impacted most. And so we see kids who are just a friggin' hot mess. I mean, you know, when, when the core, the three core cognitive functions are working memory, holding stuff in your head. So that's why people, you know, space out and blow up tests because they stress inhibition or self-control 
right? And mental, you know, cognitive and emotional flexibility. So when we, when we bring a lot of intensity to kids and, and we start trying to scare them into behaving better, those executive functions go sideways. And along with them, their own self-control and their ability to put, to kind of shift their perspective and put things into context. And I, again, I know, you know, as a parent, as an educator, it's really frustrating. You see kids think, what the hell were you thinking? Well, kind of by definition, they weren't. They weren't if you were if you were stressed enough. And so, I mean, this is not easy, but if we if we recognize what's going on, that a lot of what looks like misbehavior is just wildly dysregulated brains. And we can start trying to figure out not why you did this thing, but what was going on that put you in a brain state that led you to do this thing, that, then we can kind of we can kind of get what underlies that behavior and see the behavior as a symptom, not the behavior, you know, as as the disease itself. So, I mean, for me, I mean, other things, I, I, I so I'm a test prep guy. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm one of those overpriced tutors. And the amount of money that I have been paid to basically talk with kids, ideally not at kids, about sleep deprivation, it's just, I mean, it's just because in many ways, when, when you're tired, the effects on the brain are just like being stressed and just bad things happen. So I really think it's, it's worthwhile when you see things that aren't going well, try to lower our own energy and talk with kids respectfully about kind of what's going on with your brain. And, and I, I'm, I'm guessing there's some pretty good reasons why you did those things that were pretty, like pretty bad ideas. And I really like to, like to get through this because, um, you know, so what we talk about in this book, what, what do you say? We talk about consequences. And when we talk about disciplining kids, we usually have the idea of we want them to pay rather than we want them to learn. And of course the etymologic root of discipline is not to punish, but to teach. Um, and again, I know this is easier for me doing this one-on-one -on -one than it is with, with when you've got a whole class of folks going on, but um, with executive functions, one, know that some kids are going to have it together really early, and some kids are just going to take a long time. And we, we want to support them, but we don't want to punish them acting like it's character when it might be an issue of chemistry. I love that idea that it's chemistry and not character. And I, I do think a lot of educators, administrators feel this compulsion to reiterate what the possible consequences are for misbehavior as though that's somehow going to prevent the child from making the same mistake. So I think it's a really good reminder that they're not making the mistake because they're not aware of the consequences. Right, <laughs> they're making right. the mistake because it's serving some other need or it's the result of that brain state that has left them dysregulated. That being said, administrators, teachers, when kids misbehave have to say something. Mm -hmm. How would you recommend they talk to a large group about, in a way that will, uh, encourage them to, you know, be respectful of themselves, others in the environment? Well, there's a, it's a really good question. I mean, one thing I, I ran into a study the other day that talked about, um, about uh, crime and, and recidivism and increasing the punishment and increase the, pen, the penalty for bad behavior did nothing to decrease the, the crime rate. It was actually the likelihood of being caught the decrease the crime rate. So in a perfect world, it seems to me, as teachers, as educators, we're vigilant. And when kids misbehave, we go, up, 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 Ned, Mr. Johnson, that is not what we're going to be doing today, right? But but we suspend kids, we don't expel kids, right? You know, so there, there's a way for them when they make mistakes that they learn from that, that that you know, that they 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 suck for the ramifications in ways that are, from my perspective, probably less intense rather than rather than more intense. I also think, and Phyllis, you know this world that, that with consequences, we want things to be 
predictable, you know, that, 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 the, that if in advance, you know what, the, what, it, what it's going to be. Um, and we, in a perfect world, try to use that behavior, try to use those, those punishments, you know, with kids, not on kids, because, you know, to say, look, Ned, I understand, you know, that you were really upset and, and, and he really made you mad and, and, you, and you went and hit him. It's just not what we, we just, we can't have that in school. We can't have people hitting people, you know, and, and really to try to understand the other kid's perspective. We talk about this in the book that if you want to change behavior, we want to recognize that when you're talking about change of behavior, everybody is ambivalent about change. This really came out of work with what's called motivational interviewing for problem drinkers. And when you tell the person, you know, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to lose your, your, your health, your spouse, your job, your whatever, whatever, it, it drives denial and conflict. And then I don't come to people for help. I just argue all the reasons why I need to do the thing. And so if you have a kid who's misbehaving or getting bad grades and you start telling him all the reasons he has to change his behavior, he starts all the reasons arguing why it's so hard to do this work or you know, you can't, you can't hit your that's okay. I'm, in my head, I'm thinking, but he's a mother. He deserved that, right? And we're not, we're not, we're not making progress. And so it's, it's a challenge. It's not easy because bad behavior elicits our stress response. But in a perfect world, we would try to understand the kid's perspective. And you don't have to, you don't have to agree to say, well, gosh, Ned, you know, I can understand that I can, I can imagine that you were pretty frustrated when, when, when Joe took your backpack, right? That doesn't mean that's okay for me to hit him, right? But just as you had a reason to think that. And it's that feeling validated, feeling, you know, feeling with empathy and validation that calms hard emotions and makes the kid a lot more likely to then hear the suggestion, the recommendation, here's the penalty that's going to be for this. In a perfect world, when we correct kids, we're doing this with really low energy, because when it's really intense energy, they're just not hearing what we're going to say. And if they're not hearing what they're saying, there's no way they're going to learn from it. I love that because you're also giving them a voice when you postulate why they might be feeling a certain way, that's an opportunity for them to say yes or no, or you nailed it. I had an experience out at, on the blacktop today with a middle schooler who came up to me and she was really upset that another student wasn't using her preferred pronouns and was in mm. fact making her feel uncomfortable about her preferred pronouns, which were she, they, mm -hmm. um, and was poking fun at the use of she, they, and she actually did an excellent job explaining to me why she uses she, they, she had not yet decided what pronouns felt right, but hmm. just saying she didn't feel right because it didn't in any way convey that she was struggling with this. And the, they was just kind of a marker or a signal that this was something that was going on in her internally. Hmm. And so I asked her what she wanted to do about the situation. Did she want my help? Did she just want to vent? And she said she would like to talk to the student who was older and much bigger hmm. and tell him how she felt. And I said, okay, then, well, I can help you with that. We're both out here. He's out here. Do you want to do it yourself? Do you want me to assist you with that interaction? Do you want me to lead the discussion? She said, I want to do it. I just want you to be standing there. And so I said that we can do. So we walked over and we should all have the confidence and self-possession of this particular girl because she looked the boy in the eye and she, who was, well, she didn't really look him in the eye because he was like so much <laughs> taller than she is, but she looked up at him and she said, I'm just going to say this one time. 
when you said X, Y, Z, I found it extremely disrespectful and irritating. It won't happen again. Do you understand? And he said, uh, uh, okay. (laughs) And I said, I looked at the girl and I said, are you comfortable with this interaction? Are you good? And she said, I'm good. We, you're basically you, your job is done, Miss Bagel. I didn't have wow. to do anything. And we walked away, but she felt a thousand times better because she just needed to say what was going on and what was bothering her. And I like the idea of incorporating that into that discipline process mm-hmm. into that learning element of when kids make mistakes, because I work in a K-8, I often am dealing with little kid problems and what those little kid problems do often is reveal for me what's probably going on in my middle schoolers heads, but they won't say out loud. So I had a younger student, a third grader made a mistake, uh, was destructive, uh, when it came to some of my property. And when I talked to the child about it, I asked him if he had any idea why he might have done it or Mm. if it had just been an impulsive choice. And he said, well, I did it because I wanted some attention. And I thought, oh, if only middle schoolers could just say exactly what they were feeling, we could get to the heart of the matter a lot quicker. But I imagine a lot of the middle schoolers doing things like Joe had been mentioning earlier, the TikTok challenges and destruction in the bathrooms. If we actually could get inside their heads, they might say, yeah, you know, I, I just, I really just wanted some attention, whether it's from peers or from administrators and I'll take whatever I can get positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of, um, you know, we, we work in a middle school, not a junior high and yeah. you know, going back to that, you know, what's important competency. Well, like that'll happen if we, if we're focused on developing the needs that they have right now, focus on right right now, knowing that prefrontal cortex is slow to develop. It won't develop, you know, until a little bit later, but the emotions are developed, you know, when we go to the front and then Mm -hmm. to the back. And and I think that's, you know, when we see some of these behaviors go sideways and um, it's loud and in your face and whatnot, you know, those things seem very mature um, versus, you know, what exactly are we doing? We weren't really thinking about that, you know, and that, time for reflection um, afterwards. So I guess what's the best way to have kids reflect on this work, Ned? Yeah, I mean, so in the self-driven child, we look at the research of a guy named, uh, named Reed Larson, who, who, who really tried to figure out how, how is it that adolescents become intrinsically motivated? And he said, it's not by dutifully doing their homework. It's through what he described as the passionate pursuit of pastimes. And so this can be art, this can be music, this can be sports, this can be small engine repair, it's coding, it's whatever, whatever, whatever. Because often in those, in those hobbies, you know, we, we, you know these, these outside of school interests, sometimes in school interests, kids are working, it's high focus, it's high effort, it's high determination, it's high energy, it's low stress, right? And we know that brains can develop that because if you're working really hard at, I don't know, a piece of music and it's frustrating, you have to keep going back over and over and over, you're developing this inner drive and you're also developing those executive functions where you have to pay attention to what you're doing. You have to, you have to deal with the frustration. You, you get frustrated, you have to keep coming back, coming back, coming back. And I think that there's a, a, I have a real concern of the degree to which 
everything's about school all the time as though, you know, middle school grades. I mean, I mean, I want kids to work. We want kids to work hard in school because it's good for their development. But the idea that, that if you're not, a, if you're not top 10% of your, of your class, that you, you can't be you know, successful in life is not such a great message because that by definition, 90% of kids aren't going to be there. Right. Where, where we know that, that, I mean, just like you, you have, you have, you have kids who are in seventh grade, right. Who are five foot 10 and you have kids like me, I was five foot two until I was a junior in high school. Right. And so we know that bodies develop it really, you know, at their own pace. It's just the same thing with brains. So if, you know, whenever I work with kids who are wildly immature, ever actually with any kid, I'm always trying to figure out what do they like to do outside of school. And I take a huge interest in that because it shows them that I'm paying attention, right? It increases that relatedness and it has their identity is therefore not just about the school thing where if you feel like you come in, no one wants to come to school and feel like I have one job and it's school and I suck at it. And then we want kids to be motivated where if you realize school is an important part of, but I also take really seriously, you know, baseball or, or, or whatever it happens to be. So I think if kids can know that they can develop themselves, they can develop their motivation, they can develop all these schools, all these skills in outside of school things. And these are every bit as useful in developing themselves. Then, then it's not as scary to be kind of a, you know, a B student in school. And in fact, in my experience with kids who find school harder, when we actually say, where we, we, we stop trying to say this is so important, we say, it's kind of important. It actually makes it easier for them to put in max effort because the worst thing in the world is to do what you think was your best and have people go, mm, yeah, no. That's really scary to do. Where if you say, you know, we kind of, I want you to work hard, but if you don't, if you don't do grand, this is not, it lowers the threat and makes it easier for them to actually put in more effort. I love it. I love the focus on, you know, it's not just school. It's not what we're doing in the classroom. There's so many other things going on, whether that's sports or music or all the clubs and, and, and hopefully, you know, some of our middle school colleagues, you know, if you're not running a club, then, you know, you're helping, you know, encourage kids to go to, you know, a club at this time, you know, where many of us are a month and a half into the school year and, you know, we're able to see, you know, lots of different parts of the kid at this point, academically, behaviorally, and, um, you know, all these are, you know, related to the relatedness, you know, that we were talking about. And, the, well. and even friends, right? I mean, I had a student, mm -hmm. I had a client who the, the parents were explaining to me at the start of her sophomore year that they'd made a seven figure uh, donation to an Ivy League school and that's where their daughter was going, but they, she, they just hadn't told her yet. And then dad was saying, all she wants to do is play soccer and hang with her friends. Like, what's the, she's not going to be recruited. What's the point of that? And I'm thinking like, because uh, she enjoys it. Right. And, and friends, too. I mean, goodness, there are some people whose great skill in life is understanding other people and they you work hard at that. So they're the, they, everyone comes to them with a problem and they, and they grow up to become, I don't know, school counselors or or, you know, or, or I don't know, maybe a principal of a school who tries to figure out how do you navigate people? Right. Or, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of or salespeople. There are all kinds of jobs where those interpersonal skills and because they don't show up on a friggin standardized test. My bad. I know I'm a test guy. We, we act like they don't have value. And it's just it's just so wrongheaded. And again, 
all of us, I think, agree that we want kids to work hard in school because it's good for them and their families and it's good for the whole darn country. But we just don't want us to emphasize that, that, that academic accomplishment and act like everything else doesn't matter because it's just, it's just not true. And it's such a dreary message to give to kids, especially who are, who are not yet engaging as fully with schools as we'd like them to. Unfortunately, there's a lot of kids that that's all they know. That's all that's important to them that they know. But hopefully, you know, through hearing, you know, your words of wisdom today and, and, and reading your, you know, we can open open our minds a little bit more and, and make school a little bit more like the real world. Um, mm-hmm. So, Ned, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. I learned a ton. I've got a lot of notes for myself to sort out here. And I've got your book written down so I can go pick that puppy up as well. Yes, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me.